Hello, residents. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this month's deep dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. On this episode, we are going to be diving into asthma. But before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors over at Pearson Rabbits. Pearson Rabbits is my own personal disability and life insurance broker. They are a company that primarily helps physicians and other healthcare professionals obtain true own occupation disability insurance as well as life insurance. None of their agents receive any incentives for pushing one insurance company over another, and what that means for you is that you will end up with the plan that is best for you. Outside of EM Clerkship and our sponsorship deal, I have personally referred a few of my friends who are in medicine, as well as my significant other, for disability insurance through Pearson Rabbits. I cannot recommend their services enough. Don't wait until it's too late. Schedule a consultation appointment with one of their team members today at www.pearsonrabbits.com, and don't forget to mention EM Clerkship when you do. Now, back to the episode. This episode is structured backwards from how I normally do these deep dives. I'm going to start off by talking about how to clinically assess a patient presenting with an asthma exacerbation, meaning the things you should be looking for on exam. Then I'll quickly run through all of the treatments that we use in the ED for asthma. After laying down that foundation, then I'll break down how I personally clinically manage my patients presenting with asthma exacerbations in the ER, and then finally, we'll end by talking about the more advanced topics, intubating an asthmatic and the concept of permissive hypercapnia. Okay, first, the clinical assessment of the asthmatic. Some of this is obvious, and some of this is not. But first things first, vital signs are vital. Look for tachypnea and hypoxemia. Hypoxemia is not typically caused by asthma unless the asthma is severe and often it's representing atelectasis or some kind of impending respiratory failure if present or a secondary cause. When you go to evaluate the patient, you need to see, are they able to speak in complete sentences or are they talking like this? You also want to look for signs of accessory muscle usage. Specifically, look above the clavicles for supraclavicular retractions, look above the sternal notch for suprasternal retractions, look between the ribs for intercostal retractions, and look below the rib cage for subcostal retractions. And finally, you want to listen to their lungs, obviously. Now, I remember when I was a medical student listening to an asthmatic's lungs for the first time in the PEDS ER. I heard very loud wheezing, and this scared the bejesus out of me. I ran out of the room, told my attending, who just laughed at me, you know, in a kind of kind way. Loud wheezing on exam is good. It means that the patient is moving enough air to wheeze loudly. If you aren't moving air, you can't wheeze. In fact, many patients will begin wheezing louder after their treatment, and this means that the treatment is working and they are moving more air. Severely diminished or absent breath sounds without wheezing is a very ominous sign. These patients are sick and require immediate emergent intervention. Speaking of interventions, let's talk about all the different treatments for asthma. There's a pretty clear pecking order in the treatments of asthma and each subsequent medication is almost like a step up in intensity from the prior one. At least that's how I mentally conceptualize this. 
We'll start with the least invasive treatments and work our way through. First, kind of at the lowest of the totem pole, is a simple inhaled beta agonist in the form of an albuterol measured dose inhaler, typically dosed by giving one to two puffs up to every four hours as needed. Next is a nebulized combination of albuterol and ipratropium, commonly referred to as a duoneb. We typically will give three of these back to back to back in the ER. Next up is some form of steroids, either prednisone if you're giving it orally, or solumedrol or decadron if you're giving it IV. Next up, which is kind of controversial, is IV magnesium, and typically we give 2 grams over 30 minutes. Now the evidence for this treatment is spotty as best, but it is typically considered to be a step up from steroids and NEBS. Next up is non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, such as CPAP or BiPAP. And the purpose of these is not to help oxygenate, but to help reduce work of breathing. And finally, the last primary treatment option for asthma is some form of either IV or IM beta agonist therapy. That's either going to be epinephrine or terbutaline. Now, as a last resort, we would move to intubation. But we really want to do everything in our power here to refrain from intubating asthmatics. Intubation isn't really even a treatment here. We only do it because the patient would progress to respiratory failure and death if we didn't. Now, there are a few atypical treatments that are rarely used in the ED for asthma, and I'm going to mention them once here for completeness sake, and then never again. Sometimes you'll run into what I call the anxious asthmatic, and sometimes anxiolytics can help these patients. Now, think about it for a second with me from a physiologic point of view. Asthma causes bronchoconstriction, resulting in air trapping, and a prolonged expiratory phase. This leads to a sensation of suffocation, and understandably, the sensation of suffocation can cause anxiety and panic, and it leads to worsening tachypnea. But tachypnea is not what we want with asthma. It is only going to worsen the obstruction in the air trapping. This can spiral out of control and cause a patient to end up requiring intubation. So rarely, I have used benzos to help these patients out, and there is also evidence that ketamine can also be useful here, though ketamine has the added advantage of having direct bronchodilatory effects in addition to the sedating effects. Another atypical treatment is something called Heliox. This is a mixture of helium and oxygen, which has improved laminar flow, or in English it means it results in less resistance to flow, and sometimes we use that in kids. Management of asthma in the ER is pretty straightforward for the most part, um, with the exception of those critically ill patients who are in status asthmaticus. Personally, I'm going to give you how I manage my asthma patients in the ER, and I mentally break these patients down into three different groups, mild, moderate, and oh shit. We'll start with the mild asthmatics. These are the people who come in and look great. You can't even tell that they're symptomatic while you're talking to them. You'll hear some wheezing on exam, but they won't have any vital sign abnormalities, nor will they have any increased work of breathing. A lot of the time these patients are coming to the ER simply because they ran out of their inhaler and don't have medication at home. 
And for these patients, I'll typically order an albuterol MDI, a physical inhaler in the ER, so they can take a couple puffs and then take it home with them. If the patient just developed URI symptoms and are at the start of their illness, or if they have a history of frequent hospitalizations for asthma, then I may give them oral steroids in anticipation of them developing more severe symptoms later on. Otherwise, a lot of these patients I don't give steroids to. Next up is the moderate asthmatics. These are patients that you can tell are having an asthma exacerbation. They will likely have some mild vital sign abnormalities, like oxygen in the low to mid-90s, maybe some mild tachypnea, and while talking to these patients, you will be able to tell that they are not breathing normally. They mostly can speak in full sentences, but it may take some extra effort to do so. No major increased work of breathing here. They will be wheezing, but also may have some diminished air movement as well. These patients, for me, universally, are getting three duonebs and steroids up front and will be frequently reassessed. And the key here is frequent reassessment. If these patients are not trending in the right direction, I have a low threshold to escalate therapy one step at a time, starting with magnesium, then non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and then finally with epinephrine. And last up is the oh shit group of patients. Yeah. Those of you who have been doing this for a couple years know exactly why I name these patients as such. These patients will often have vital sign abnormalities, such as severe tachypnea and sometimes even hypoxemia. You won't really be able to get much of a history out of these patients because they are in such respiratory distress. And after you realize that you're not going to get much of a history, you go to listen to their chest, and you hear nothing. Oh shit, is right. That is an ominous sign. Now, before anchoring on this presentation being due to asthma, you should make sure there aren't other red flag symptoms that would indicate an alternative diagnosis, like anaphylaxis or foreign body aspiration in a kid or anything else like that. Now, it is so important to throw the kitchen sink at these patients up front. I will order everything immediately. So they will get continuous duonebs, solumedrol, magnesium, epi, and I will be calling the respiratory therapist to put them on BiPAP. I usually order a fluid bolus with these patients as they're usually pretty dehydrated simply from exerting themselves to breathe. You want to do everything in your power to stave off intubation, and the way to do that, in my opinion, is to throw the kitchen sink at them up front. None of this wait-and-see bullshit, none of this reassessment bullshit. Hit them with everything up front. You do not want to intubate these patients. All right, let's end this episode by talking about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, also known as BiPAP or CPAP, and then we will go into intubation and the concept of permissive hypercapnia. So like I said here, intubation is not a treatment. It is a last resort. The patient should be given a trial run of BiPAP prior to intubation, obviously unless they arrive in overt respiratory failure or anything like that. The purpose of BiPAP here is not to provide oxygenation, but to help reduce the work of breathing. So I usually start 10 over 5, and that is an inspiratory pressure of 10 and an expiratory pressure of 5, and then I titrate up only the inspiratory pressure. 
By doing this, you are increasing something that is called the delta pressure, also known as the driving pressure, and that is defined by the inspiratory pressure minus the expiratory pressure. Increasing this delta pressure or this driving pressure is the key to reducing work of breathing. Again, you don't really need to do anything with that expiratory pressure. That's to help with oxygenation. So let's say you throw the kitchen sink at them and it's not working. Either their respiratory rate is decreasing, which is a bad sign, or the CO2 on their blood gas is normalizing or trending towards hypercapnia, or they're working so hard to breathe that you just know respiratory failure is imminent. You need to pull the trigger and intubate the patient. Now, the actual intubation itself is not much different than in any other patient. Some pearls for the intubation here. First of all, you want to use the largest endotracheal tube possible to help reduce airway resistance by increasing airway flow. Ideally, you want to use an 8O or higher. Next, you do not want to bag these patients if you don't have to. Bagging is going to inevitably lead to severe air trapping, which we'll talk a little more about in a bit. And then finally, the most important thing is the vent settings. This is not the patient to walk away from immediately after intubation. You must work with the respiratory therapist to determine ideal vent settings. And as discussed on the case, we want to avoid something called air trapping, also called auto peeping. This occurs when there isn't enough expiratory time to completely exhale, and so a small amount of air gets trapped with each breath. Over time, this trapped air accumulates in the chest, leading to super high airway pressures, which can either cause a pneumothorax, or it can act physiologically just like a tension pneumothorax by significantly decreasing the venous return to the heart and causing obstructive shock. My goal for the remainder of the episode is to answer a few key questions and then talk about permissive hypercapnia. These three questions are, number one, how do you know if the patient is air trapping? Number two, what do you do once you've identified air trapping? And number three, how do you prevent air trapping from happening in the first place? So let's start with number one. How do you know if the patient is air trapping? Now, there are at least three ways to figure this out. The first way, which I recommend if you have this available, is to ask your respiratory therapist for help. I would always recommend getting your respiratory therapist involved and using all resources available to you, but you must be able to recognize this on your own without a respiratory therapist. I work at a few hospitals and EDs that don't have respiratory therapy, and you are responsible for managing the vent. Ultimately, you are also responsible for anything that happens to the patient. So I would not rely on a respiratory therapist, but please use them if you have them available. Second is to look at the vent flow waveform yourself. You know, that graph that shows the inspiratory flow rate and the expiratory flow rate, and it's all graphed versus time. I've included a photo in the show notes and the website that shows what normal looks like as well as what air trapping looks like, and it's pretty self-explanatory once you understand the graph. The expiratory portion of the waveform should 
return to the zero baseline before initiation of the next breath, before inspiration starts. If inspiration begins before the expiratory portion returns to zero, that means inspiration is occurring before you finish expiration, and therefore that is indicating that air is being trapped. And number three, you should always have a very high index of suspicion to suspect this clinically. If an asthmatic becomes hypotensive after intubation, and I'm not talking immediately after intubation, you know, a lot of patients get hypotensive after you intubate them. I'm talking 10, 20, 30 minutes, an hour after intubation. I am immediately thinking of two causes, attention pneumothorax and air trapping causing obstructive shock. Okay, question number two. What do you do once you've identified air trapping? Now, this is going to sound insane, but your immediate next step is to literally disconnect the ventilator from the endotracheal tube, get on the stretcher if you need to for leverage, and gradually push on the patient's chest with both of your hands to force out all of that trapped air. My one pearl for this is to make sure you tell the nurse and the respiratory therapist what you're going to do before you do it. Otherwise, you're probably going to freak some people out. Once all the air is released, you can reattach the ventilator to the endotracheal tube and change the vent settings to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that leads us to key point number three. How do you prevent air trapping from happening in the first place? You prevent air trapping by choosing appropriate vent settings. I know a lot of ER doctors who use the same cookie cutter vent settings for everyone. Usually it's something like a tidal volume of 450, a PEEP of 5, respiratory rate of 20, and O2 of 100%. Now you can get away with that for most patients, but doing that in an intubated asthmatic or a patient with severe DKA will kill them. One of the keys here for setting up the vent appropriately for an asthmatic is the respiratory rate. Now, remember that formula for minute ventilation. Minute ventilation, which is the total volume of air that is being ventilated over the course of a minute, is defined by or is calculated by the tidal volume times the respiratory rate. Now, to allow a patient to exhale fully, we're going to need a low respiratory rate here. I'll usually set it around 10 to 12 to start, but this may need to be titrated as time goes on. Because our respiratory rate is so low, we are going to need a high tidal volume to maximize the minute ventilation. I typically set my tidal volume in these patients to 8 cc's per kilogram, and remember, that is based on ideal body weight, not actual body weight. Any higher has been shown to be associated with significantly increased risk of barotrauma. If any of you have rotated in the ICU, I am sure you've heard of the ARDSNET trial. It practically gets shoved down your throat when you're in the ICU. And the result of that trial was showing that a lung protective strategy has better outcomes, shooting for a tidal volume of 6 to 8 cc's per kilogram ideal body weight. So I go for 8 here. The FiO2 doesn't matter much, asthmatics typically aren't hypoxemic, so set this at whatever is necessary to keep the SATs above 95%. And then I'll set the PEEP low anywhere between 3 and 5. 
Now, you may have to change a parameter that you usually don't hear about, something called the expiratory time or the IDE ratio, which is simply the ratio of time spent during inhalation versus exhalation. Classically, it is taught that you must have an IDE ratio of at least one to four. But the thing is, you can still have air trapping even with an IDE ratio of one to four. Sometimes you'll need one to six, sometimes maybe even one to eight. But make sure you don't forget to talk to your respiratory therapist and to change this. Okay, let's say you get the patient set up on the vent correctly and there is no air trapping. Congratulations. But then the respiratory therapist comes to you with the ABG. The pH is 7.17 and the PCO2 is 70. Why did this happen and what do you do about it? This is where the concept of permissive hypercapnia comes into play. Remember that minute ventilation is tidal volume times respiratory rate. Remember that we had to set a low respiratory rate to allow for exhalation to occur. So even though we set the tidal volume as high as we safely can, the minute ventilation is still low because of that low respiratory rate. This means that we are not ventilating as much as we usually do, and this leads to hypercapnia. We allow for this hypercapnia because in general, it is very well tolerated and it is the lesser of the two evils, the other being air trapping and death. So the answer here is to do absolutely nothing. We call it permissive hypercapnia for a reason. The patient is not air trapping and over time, their asthmatic pathophysiology will improve, which will allow us to gradually increase the respiratory rate over time and correct that hypercapnia. Now, that was a lot of information, guys. Let's summarize. So first, to assess an asthmatic, you want to look for tachypnea and hypoxemia on their vital signs. You want to clinically assess for respiratory distress, so looking for accessory muscle usage or short sentences. And lastly, you want to auscultate. Wheezing is good. Lack of wheezing with poor air movement is bad. There are many treatments available for asthma. An albuterol MDI can be used for mild exacerbations. Duonebs and steroids for moderate exacerbations. IV magnesium, BiPAP, epi, and terbutaline for severe exacerbations. And as we said earlier, in certain patients, benzos, ketamine, and heliox may be beneficial. Try everything you can to avoid intubating the patient. If you must intubate, remember to use the largest endotracheal tube possible, at least an 8-0, and try to avoid bag mask ventilation. Choose the correct vent settings to allow for full exhalation in order to avoid air trapping. And this really means a low respiratory rate and an I to E ratio of 1 to 4 or higher. Now this may result in hypercapnia and respiratory acidosis, but that is okay. It is called permissive hypercapnia for a reason. And finally, have a high index suspicion for air trapping and make sure you know how to identify this on the ventilator's flow versus time graph. If air trapping occurs and causes tension physiology, first, don't forget, tell everyone what you're about to do and then disconnect the ventilator from the endotracheal tube and manually push on the patient's chest to facilitate exhalation. 
Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope this episode was helpful and that I didn't lose you in the weeds. Any comments, feedback, or questions are welcome. My email is mike at emclerkship.com. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Pearson Rabbits, and until next month's case, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.